We like to talk about Cedar Point on this podcast because at least a couple of people are pass holders every year. And there is big news that we'll be talking about first up on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, and Lisa Garvin. And Layla, as always, you get the Cedar Point story. This could change the state of roller coasters everywhere. What companies announced a merger this morning involving our beloved Cedar Point? Cedar Fair and Six Flags have agreed to join forces creating this new mega company called Six Flags. They'll be headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the company will feature a combined 27 amusement parks, 15 water parks, and nine resorts across 17 states, Canada, and Mexico. The current president and CEO of Cedar Fair, Richard Zimmerman, will serve as president and CEO of the new company. And Salim Basul, president and CEO of Six Flags, will serve as executive chairman of the company's board of directors. And that new board will be equally split with representatives from the two companies. They're saying that this merger will will minimize overlap between the offerings at the parks. They will have increased intellectual property, including Looney Tunes, DC Comics, and Peanuts. And season pass holders will get better access to more parks, and they'll save a bunch of money in administrative and operational costs. And, you know, one industry expert told Susan Glaser that this will likely make this company the largest regional theme park company in the world. The two are already powerhouses in the industry. I mean, Cedar Fair, of course, owns Cedar Point, but also Kings Island and nine other amusement parks and four separate admission water parks in the U.S. and Canada. Six Flags has 27 parks across the continent, including Six Flags Great America outside Chicago and Six Flags Great Adventure New Jersey. So the combined company is valued at $8 billion dollars. And, uh, you know, as of October 31st. Um, So Susan mentioned in her story that the deal could really, you know, deal a blow to Sandusky, which has enjoyed having the Cedar Fair uh, company located there and moving those operations down to Charlotte could be could be a hardship for them. But she points out that they've been moving operations to Charlotte already because of a previous uh, purchase that normally when two Titans like these two merge, there's automatic discussions of antitrust. Will the government try and block it? But is there really competition between Cedar Point and Six Flags, New Jersey, um, or do these regional places generally serve regional audiences. I know people from Michigan go to Cedar Point and because of its incredible roller coasters, people actually do come from around the world. But but I wonder if there is an antitrust issue here because they'll control so much of this entertainment dollar. That is a really good, good point. I, I would guess that they do serve the regional uh, audiences, as you said, but Cedar Point is a, a national draw. I, I had friends in uh, when I was in grad school who, when they got married, they, they were from Missouri. They honeymooned at Cedar Point <laughs> because Wait. they were that they were huge fans of, of roller coasters, and they knew that they couldn't get anything better than than Cedar Point. So, but, but you you and Laura have at times bought the passes. We've talked about it, and this would allow you use of parks elsewhere if you go on vacation. Laura's had a taste of this. In skiing, well, the, the local ski areas have been bought by Vail, and so Laura can 
used her pass at a whole bunch of places she couldn't use it before, right? You have to be a platinum pass member to get that kind of access, though. I think that's what it is, right, Laura? The gold, the season gold pass is only good for Cedar Cedar Point unless they change those rules. Well, I think what they're going to change is the big question, right? Because when Vale bought up little mom and pop places like Boston Mills and Brandywine, all of a sudden, what was a pretty affordable season pass skyrocketed, skyrocketed. So sure, I can go ski Park City and Whistler, and that's amazing, but only if I pay this higher price. And you can get an Ohio pass. But I, I assume something similar is going to come the way this way, right? If you want all the access, it's going to be a lot more expensive. But I wonder, Layla, if we are going to see the $99 gold pass again. But uh, uh, like I said, the $99 gold pass is only good for Cedar I know, Point. but I just wonder if this merger will change that mark. You know, like if they'll be like, well, we're just not going to off. I don't know. I'll be interested well, to see what I they decide hope not, to because do. Because they they make it seem like they're creating all kinds of efficiencies throughout their you know their operation on account of this merger, which should be you know passed down to the consumer. I would hope. <laughs> I I wait to see that. <laughs> if they jack up prices, I'll be. They're pissed. not doing ninety nine dollar passes out of the goodness of their hearts. They make money on it. So if it's a profitable and operation, they make money on their seventeen dollar crappy burgers and their twelve dollar so. <laughs> um, funnel cake. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, if that's if they're making money on it, they'll keep doing it. Maybe they'll raise the price. Who knows? Very interesting. Big development for Northeast Ohio, Northern Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why does Ohio Senator J.D. Vance say U.S. banks should be more firmly cautioned by the government about lending money with regard to somebody's immigration status? Lisa, is this more culture warrior stuff from our new senator? I don't know. Hard to say. I think you have to judge for yourself. But Senator Vance sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland and the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Rohit Chopra. He's asking them to reconsider a current policy that cautions lenders not to rely too heavily on immigration status when they're making loans or, you know, determining their credit worthiness. He said, you know, that it should consider if using immigration and citizenship status to ascertain creditworthiness is biased. So they're trying to eliminate bias in the lending process. But Vance says this policy flies in the face of responsible responsible lending standards and risk management. It contradicts decades of guidance from federal banking regulations and the CFPB. And he said the borrower likelihood of repayment falls if there's no guarantee they're going to stay in the community where they got the loan or the country or in the legal system. So um, he said that assessing their immigration status when making a loan or or proffering credit is common sense. And he said, you know, anything different is a serious risk to financial instability. Well, but wouldn't you figure that the banks know about what risks they're taking when they lend money? Wouldn't you think that because it's their money that's at stake, they're considering all of the elements about whether they'll get paid back or not? I'm not sure why the government needs to get involved. The the banks have a lot on the line when they make a loan. Right. But the policy wasn't Vance's. This is a policy that, that they came up with and saying, oh, don't rely too heavily on their immigration status. Well, you know, so they are telling the banks what to do. 
Yeah, well, but I, I wonder if the banks are listening. I mean, it's the bank's money that's at stake. They're not going to risk it if they don't think they're going to get it back. Interesting that he's picked this one to go on. It, it's great sound bites, right? It's common sense. It's common sense. He loves to do that kind of press release. Yeah, I'm not sure I hear a dog whistle here, though. I mean, you know, when I lived in Houston, Chinese investors swept in and bought all kinds of houses and property. And, you know, so I, you know, I don't know. I, I'm on the fence on this one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Speaking about cartoonish culture warriors, Ohio State Senator Jerry Serino has had his share of controversy this year with his failed effort to deprive Clevelanders of a key element of self-governance and his drive to make Ohio college campuses more conservative. The House has blocked him so far, Laura, but does his college bill suddenly have some movement? Yep. We're on the 11th iteration of this bill. It's about a third shorter than it was originally, and they removed the inability for educators to strike. There have been a bunch of mother, a bunch of other modifications, but the strike seemed to be the sticking point with the House. Although there are still so many things that you read this bill and you're like, why is this necessary? So previ- previous versions of the bill outright banned diversity, equity, and inclusion Um initiatives. Now they say schools can decide whether they're going to provide it, the training, but they can't mandate it. Now it doesn't require institutions of higher learning to amend their mission statements, but they'd be allowed to instead put out a statement declaring that it's their duty to ensure within or without outside the classroom that school will not require favor, disfavor, or prohibit speech or lawful assembly. There's all sorts of things in here. Um, There'll still be a review of faculty, although that faculty then would be allowed to challenge that. They'd still have to have this three-hour class where you have to read the Declaration of Independence, but they'd be allowed to figure, to have a little more leeway on how they design that class. The people who are for this bill say that Ohio is dealing with an aging population and it has a shrinking college age population and student body. So this is necessary, but I don't see how this helps anyone go to college in Ohio. No, it's just going to shrink the number of people that want to be there. Look, he's been humiliated, and rightly so, in his efforts to get this passed. He has wheedled and pleaded. It's a solution in search of a problem, and it's embarrassing because he served on the Budget Reconciliation Committee, where the Senate had put this into their budget proposal, So he's one of four people that's reconciling the budget. And even with that power, he couldn't get it through. He's been humiliated at every turn. So he's just going to keep weakening it in all sorts of ways until he can wheedle and whine to get it through in some shape or form because he's got nothing to show for all his efforts so far. This is such a waste of the legislature's time and, and it's going to make it harder for the colleges to operate. What student? would want to go to college in Ohio with this kind of overwrought nonsense. And what kind of professor would want to come to Ohio to teach if they feel so hamstrung by the rules? And it's one thing to set rules. It's another... People aren't going to even toe the line, right? Because they don't want to lose their tenure. So it might stifle any kind of thought because people are too afraid of crossing that line. The bill contains a section that says there shall be no indoctrination on controversial beliefs and then includes climate policy as an example of controversial belief. Like, I mean, are they going to say evolution is controversial? It just seems absurd at this point. 
It is. It's really, it's completely unnecessary. And again, I think he's, because he wants to save face, because this is such an embarrassing effort by him, he's going to keep altering it until I think he wears them down and they finally say, oh, okay, we'll put it through. It's just a waste of time. Did he get through, he already got millions of dollars that we're going to spend on like weird conservative think tanks at a lot of these schools, right? Law schools. Yeah, that one did pass. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The controversy over the Cleveland Catholic Diocese LGBTQ policy for its churches and schools continues. Some students very publicly made their feelings known Wednesday. Layla, how did they do that? Well, dozens of students and alumni from local Catholic schools protested Wednesday outside Cleveland Public Auditorium. That's where Bishop Edward Molesic was leading a Eucharistic revival rally in Mass. And this protest was in response to the Catholic Diocese of Cleveland's policy that was enacted earlier this fall, barring students and staff at Catholic schools from undergoing gender-affirming care and using pronouns that are different from the ones that are affiliated with the person's biological sex. The policy also requires church or school staff members to notify parents if their child might be transgender. Reporter Molly Walsh was out there and spoke to some of the protesters who said that they stand firmly with LGBTQ students and staff against this policy and and that they believe this policy fosters hatred and causes kids to be ashamed of who they are. Molly says that in a September email, Molesic had requested all Catholic high school students across the eight-county diocese attend his rally in Mass for what he called a deep and profound encounter with Jesus. So there were a lot of students in attendance at this event, hopefully the ones who felt like uh, they were being wronged by this policy felt some support from the folks who were outside. It's got to be confusing to be a teenage Catholic in Cleveland with this message from the bishop and a completely opposite message from the Pope. So if, if you're a young Catholic trying to find your way in the world, who do you listen to? That's a great point. I mean, I, I'm not Catholic. There's There's a great deal about the Catholic Church and its policies that I would personally find troubling and alienating if I were born into this faith and had to grapple with my religious identity. But if the church is at all concerned about its future appeal to the youngest generations, they're they're going about it wrong because, mm-hmm. like it or not, the youngest Americans are by and large more inclusive and accepting than any generation that has come before them. And even though these policies directly affect a minority of students, the majority of young people are not going to stand for it. Well, and the Pope outranks the bishop. So if the bishop is delivering one message and the Pope is delivering another, I would think they'd say, I don't care what the bishop says. I'm going with what the Pope says. And this this is silly. I still don't understand why the bishop issued this because it wasn't needed. There was no issue driving it. And it just created huge ill will in large sectors and real divide in the church members, which we've seen through a lot of our email. And it's not just the Pope, too. Remember that a lot of these kids go to schools that aren't overseen by the diocese, or they go to schools like John Carroll University, and those have a much more inclusive tact. So it it is confusing, and I agree 100% with what Layla says, that everybody, not just the young people, are reckoning with what they're being told and how that jives with what they believe. 
it's not a good look to have a bunch of the kids that you've invited to this big day standing outside saying, you're wrong, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure the bishop would have preferred that protest not occur. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Two Cleveland projects are getting more than a million bucks in credits to create jobs. Lisa, who are they and what are the jobs for? And actually, one is a Cleveland company and one might be a Cleveland company, but it's not a done deal yet. So the Ohio Department of Development approved $1.1 million in tax credits to Cleveland Kitchen, um, which produces pickled and fermented foods. They'll get a seven-year tax credit at $300,000 a year for creating 80 jobs and a three $3.6 million payroll, but they must stay in their location for at least 10 years. Now, the other company is Lab Connect LLC. It's a, a sample processing lab that's based in Tennessee, but Ohio is competing with two other states, uh, Minnesota and North Carolina, for this project. If they come to Ohio, they would get an eight-year, $850,000 tax credit to create 167 jobs with an $8 million annual payroll, and they must maintain operations in Cleveland for at least 11 years. A third company, Ohio, got some money as well. Joby Aero has plans for a large Dayton aerospace manufacturing facility, and they're getting a huge chunk. They're getting um, a $93 million tax credit over 30 years. Yeah, it's good news. It's uh, it, You'd like to see Cleveland in particular get some of this economic development juice because so much of it has gone to the central part of the state. Hopefully the, the one will decide to locate here. You're listening to Today in Ohio. There are some heartbreaking allegations in a recent lawsuit over the death on duty of a Cuyahoga County jail officer. Laura, what does the lawsuit say happened? This is so sad and seems really senseless just reading this lawsuit and the bare facts. Warren Johnson died July 3rd of 2022. That was two weeks after he was rushed from the jail to university hospitals with a glucose level of more than five times the normal level. So the lawsuit argues that the county ignored numerous requests that Johnson made for breaks to check his blood. He didn't want to work past his regular 12-hour shift, but the county was like, too bad. He had type 2 diabetes and was hired in February 2019. In 2021, the official said, sure, you can work these 12-hour shifts, avoid the extra four hours that corrections officers are forced to work if the jail is short-staffed, which we all know was short-staffed, it is short-staffed a lot of the time. And then he was allowed to take three breaks per shift to monitor his glucose levels. That's really important when you're diabetic. But they rescinded this accommodation in May of 2022. And his doctor was preparing paperwork for the county to review, but the county disciplined him for refusing to work longer than 12 hours. And then there comes this back and forth. Remember, that's May. He died in the summer that they're denying his request. He's going to the hospital from work because he's getting really sick from his, his diabetes. Yeah, it is a lawsuit. So, the, and these are allegations made in the lawsuit. Correct. But if there's any truth to them, you just have to wonder what are they thinking at the jail? I, I have no idea. It, my, my wrote it in all caps here. Why wouldn't they let him take breaks? Like, it feels like, I mean, I know people are required to have breaks when they work any kind of job and you have to have a lunch break and then you usually get 15 minutes, I think, every four hours. But they don't have enough staffing. It seemed like he was a fine employee if he had stayed on that long already. And if he just needs to check his glucose, that cannot take that long. It's like a bathroom break. What is the deal? 
And we've said over and over that we need a new jail, but the truth is it doesn't matter how modern your facility is. If your policies and your training is bad, you're going to have jail problems. This seems like a big one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Social media is awash with concern about provisional ballots in Ohio based on how many ended up being rejected in the August special election. So our state house chief, Rick Rowan, put together a simple set of steps to take to make sure you don't end up with a provisional ballot. Layla, what is a provisional ballot and how do I avoid getting one? Provisional ballots are, are used to record a vote if your eligibility is in question and, and if you otherwise would not be permitted to vote at your polling place. Elections officials will later verify your eligibility to vote in the precinct of, at that election. And if officials determine that you weren't eligible, your provisional ballot would be rejected. So the problem here is that you don't really know if your vote is going to count in the end if you're casting a provisional ballot. So during this August special election, there was an uptick in the number of rejected provisional ballots. So it's really important to get it together and cast a vote that you know will count. So Rick put together a list of steps to make sure that your vote counts. Number one, you know, make sure you're registered to vote by entering your first and last name in the county where you live at the voter lookup site, which is on our website. Check to make sure you're going to the correct polling place and you can see your polling place and other district information by looking up your registration. Bring appropriate identification. There's a, a variety of things that you can do. Unsure if you're unsure of what your what is acceptable, elections officials can take a state ID, passport, military ID, all a whole variety of things like that. Your social security card. If you don't have a photo ID. You should get one. You can get them uh, by visiting the BMV, uh, and and you know the BMV will give you temporary paperwork that functions as an ID while you're having that permanent one made. You should check if you requested an absentee ballot. If you requested an absentee ballot and try to vote in person on election day, you're going to have to vote provisionally. So check ahead of time. Return your completed absentee ballot if you requested one. And if you requested an absentee ballot but want to vote in person. You can vote at your county's early voting center without being forced to cast a provisional ballot. So make sure you get it together, guys. <laughs> and it used to be if you voted provisionally, you you could pretty much be guaranteed you'd be counted. But because the legislature and its zeal to reduce voting change the rules, mm -hmm. a lot of these ballots get rejected on the most technical of reasons. And so your vote doesn't count. So it is more important than ever to not vote provisionally and to make sure you do it. There has been some confusion about whether a military ID is okay. There've been, there's been mixed messaging on it, but, but it's supposed to be okay. If you right. have a photo military ID, if anybody messes with you, you probably need to make a call down to the elections office. Anyway, check oh, it out. Actually, it's important. Pause. Avoid I, provisional I ballots. Chris, I misspoke when I said social security card or an ex is not acceptable. Right. Take that out. <laughs> yeah, that's that that's not a photo ID. Right, right. You can't yeah. they won't accept a college ID, an out-of-state ID, social security card or an expired driver's license. So Right, which an expired driver's license is another way that catches people. I've seen people talking about this on Nextdoor and on Facebook. They're worried about it. And so you can avoid it and follow the steps and vote on a regular ballot and your vote will count. 
It's Today in Ohio. Halloween is over. Thanksgiving is just three weeks from today. I think it's the earliest it can be. We're checking. So, Lisa, good time to ask you, the bird expert, what's the status of our wild turkey population in Ohio? And I do promise that if you keep coming out to our office for editorial board meetings, you're going to see some. <laughs> I know. I keep looking for the plain dealer turkeys over there at Tiedemann Road. But I did. I was driving. You know, I live very close to the Cuyahoga County Airport, and I actually pulled off the road a couple of days ago to take a picture of a turkey that was sitting there by the airport. Wild turkeys are doing very well, according to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. They use what's called a poult index to measure. So a poult is a newly hatched turkey chick. So in 2023, we've had 2.8 poults per hen, and that's above the 10-year average of 2.7. This is the third year in a row that the poult index has been above average. Last year, it was 3.1 per hen. Uh, in 2021, it was 3.1 as well. And it was below average in the years prior to 2020. So there was a little fluctuation there. And things that affect the turkey population are weather, habitat, and the absence or presence of predators. Um, the Ohio wild turkey population was completely wiped out in 1904. It was reintroduced in the 1950s and flourished, especially in East and Southern Ohio. And as I said, they're increasingly turning up in suburbs because they're lured by ready food sources and a lack of predators. All three of you grew up in Northeast Ohio. Were, were wild turkeys on the landscape when you were children? Absolutely not. Foxes, yes, uh, but I never saw wild turkey as a kid. Laura, Layla? I recall nope. seeing, seeing uh, but very occasionally, it was like a unicorn. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're omnipresent now. You see them all the time. They're, they're walking down the road, and, and especially out where we work, out at the Tiedemann Road. Uh, we, I mean, they block your way into the building. They're not <laughs> shy. So it's just fascinating. They're, they're like deer. notes they're from the geese, <laughs> the cat of the yeah, geese. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, good to talk about a Thanksgiving story three weeks early. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Art Museum recently bought a 17th century piece once owned by the Rothschild family and confiscated by the Nazis. It's amazing how often we're talking about Nazi confiscated art related to Cleveland recently. <laughs> what is this piece, Laura? This is an elaborate shell cup. I, I have to say I've never seen anything like it. I didn't know this was a thing. But Dutch merchants that sailed back and forth to Indonesia in the 17th century, you know, to get nutmeg and cloves, they brought home these large, flawless nautilus shells that were valued as scientific and aesthetic curiosity. So wealthy collectors bought them. And then metalsmiths in Amsterdam, Delft, and other cities turned these shells into elaborate cups. They put sculptural depictions of sea monsters, birds, other creatures in fine metals. So this one... The Cleveland Museum of Art bought for $1.5 million from an auction of the Rothschild family items that was offered by Christie's in New York. It was first acquired in the 19th century by Baron James Meyer de Rothschild. It, it's from 1607. It has silver gilt ribs or straps and has a crescent-shaped pouring spout topped with a growling sea monster and a sculpture of Fortuna, the Roman goddess of fortune and luck. This item was confiscated by the Nazis during World War II. They wanted to deprive Jewish collectors of their property. But then it was returned to the family after the war, owned by its members ever since. And CMA was very clear. We know the provenance of this <laughs> after all their last things. And we feel, you know, we know that they owned it. 
we bought it. It's it's fair. We have a photo of it on Cliven.com. We ran a picture of it in the Plain Dealer a while back. But I got to say, I love reading Steve Litt's descriptions of something like this because they're just so rich to go with the photo. He did a beautiful job describing it. This is not something that I like pine for that I'd want to have in my house. <laughs> you can have it in the museum. It's cool to look at, but you're not like, yep, I want one of those. Yeah, but I would like to go see it based mm-hmm. on the picture and what Steve said about mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah. So good, good piece. We This is from a few weeks back. It was on the list to talk about if we ever had a slow day. And indeed, we have a slow day. So slow that we're ending a little bit early. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow's Friday. We wrap up the week of news. <laughs>